Hi, and welcome to the Genesis Podcast. We're so glad to be able to bring a small portion of our community to you through this medium and hope that you'll join us in our endeavor to embolden one another to change the world by effectively representing Jesus Christ. If you would like to know more about who we are as a community, as well as when and where we meet, you can visit us online at thegenesisstory.com. Also, if you have benefited from this podcast in any way or would like to participate in what we're doing here at Genesis, would you consider partnering with us by donating online again at www.thegenesisstory.com. There you can select the giving tab and how you would like to contribute to the general fund or even to the building fund. Remember, we can do more together than we can ever do alone. Thanks for taking the time to be with us. God bless. Well, tonight we are going to conclude with the parables. I think it's part eight. At least that's what I have on the top of my notes here. Tonight we are going to be looking at Matthew chapter 13. It's a very short parable, verses 47 to 50. But I think it's powerful in what it does not say. Matthew what? 13. Verses 47 to 50. Let's pause and let's pray as we move forward. Father, once again, we have opportunity to still our lives from the busyness and to focus on you or to look at these scriptures and the things that you've said and that you have written down for our benefit, Lord, to help us to connect to you. And I pray, Lord, that we would do just that in this time, that you would give us insight and that you would inspire our time together. Thank you again for everybody here. Pray, Lord, that you would continue to touch and strengthen us. Lord, touch Kristen's body. Continue to strengthen that baby within her, Lord. I pray for a continued healing, Lord, for my wife, for Eileen, for myself. For those who are ill, Lord, and recovering, I pray, Lord, you continue to help us to get healthy. I do pray for our trip to La Paz coming up next week, and even our friends that we're going to be seeing uh, this next few days. Lord, bless the time that we have with them. Thank you again for what you are doing in our midst. May we always be aware of it, Lord, and may we always be grateful. And we do ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Matthew 13, verses 47 to 50. Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it on the shore. Then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but threw the bad away. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's it. That's the whole parable. Now, it's important to understand what kind of net and fishing that he's talking about because that picture helps, I think, for us to understand a little bit more of what's taking place. And this is called a a scene net, S-E-I-N-E, scene fishing, bless you. It's also known as a drag net or a draw net. And what would happen is this net would usually be 
smaller on the ends and then it would widen in the middle. So it might be like eight feet or five feet on the ends, go up to as much as 12 feet in the middle and then taper back down to maybe five feet. And it could be as long as 500 feet. And what would happen is there would be ropes going throughout this entire net and on the bottom there would be weights. And so what would happen is some men would stand on the shore and a boat would go out and it would start to kind of troll out and they would let this net out until they made this kind of loop. And when they circle back around, they would bring the ropes back into the other group and then they would slowly just pull this in. And what happened is all the weights that went to the bottom, they slowly just drug all these fish into that net. And so... What's happening here, hey Dave, is just this picture of the net being set out here and being drawn in because the net represents the gospel. We're in Matthew 13, Dave, verses 47 to 50. And the gospel is reaching the world. It's reaching everyone who's in the world as opposed to us reaching God, okay? And so it's kind of interesting to think of the gospel as a net catching people. But I think that's really a beautiful picture where God has set out this gospel into the world and he's slowly bringing it in and he's catching everyone. He's not just catching some, he's actually catching everyone in this net. It is more of a picture of who God is, I think, than it is of who we are and of how he loves and how he reaches. The net is being let down into the entire world and fish by nature don't swim into nets. Fish by nature try and avoid the nets. Right, And so if they see a net coming at them, if you've ever had those little hand fisher nets, you know, that you try to swing, they always swim around it. You know, you're, it's like, come on, you know, they just, they always move around. And what happens typically is they try to go down underneath. They dive to get away from the net, but that's what this net is made for. That's why the weights are there so that when they dive down, they actually go into the net. And so they try to escape the net, but the design of this net, and I think the design of the gospel, is that it's unavoidable. That it doesn't matter where we are, it doesn't matter where we're living, that this gospel of who God is, is unavoidable. Now, of course, the gospel that we know concerning Christ is something that not everybody has heard of, not every nation hears of. But Paul even tells us in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse, that God has sent out his calling card throughout the world so that everyone has an awareness. And I think that is the picture that I find so intriguing about this parable, is that God is not going to 
allow anyone to escape from his getting to them with the good news, with him reaching them with the good news. And so it's important to see that. And Paul, in Acts chapter 17, talks about this even further at Athens, at verse 24 of Acts 17. He says, Then God, Paul speaking to those there at Athens, who made the world and everything in it, is Lord of heaven and earth, and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands, and he, as if he needed anything, rather... He himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that he should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed time and history and boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. And so again, this is kind of a picture. We, we live and move. We have our being. We are fish in the water, unaware that it is God who is all around us. And this gospel has gone out, and it is this net that is pulling every kind of fish, it says. I think there were a total of like 18 different types of fish in the Sea of Galilee, and 12 of them were valuable to sell for various purposes. And so the majority of them could be used for some purpose. There were a few that were discarded as valueless. And so here is this, again, picture. Well, which ones are being brought in? Just the ones that are valued? No, all of them. Everyone. Well, who decides which ones will be taken and which ones will be thrown out? See, that's the beauty. It's not us. And it's not the fish. The fish have no say in this. The fish have no say who's in the net, who's not in the net, who's collected, who's thrown away. When the net's full, it's brought in. And and this is more of an illustration because what would usually happen is they would do this multiple times. They'd send out the net and they'd pull it in, they'd drag it. It was laborious work, right? They'd bring it in, they'd bring it in, they'd wrap it up, wrap it up, wrap it up, go out again, bring it in, bring it in. They would do this multiple times to get that few fish. And so it was rare that they had put it out and then it would be full. And that's why some of the times where Jesus told them to cast out the net and they were remarked that, oh man, it's full and they were overwhelmed. That was unusual. And so here in this story, as he's kind of doing this, the picture is one of patience, care, and deliberation. That God is putting out the net. He's taking care to do this in a way to catch all the fish. He's patiently waiting, but he's very deliberate in what he's doing. He is trying to reach the entire world with the gospel. And God is constantly at work. The psalmist, Psalm 121, verse 4 says, Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. If God's not sleeping, what's he doing? He's... Watching that nap. 
his gospel is out there. He's waiting to catch everyone. And so this is that picture that we have there. And again, notice what's missing in this. It's the voice. It's the choice of the fish. And it's why. Why don't we see in this story, in this parable, some fish chose to swim into the net. Some fish chose not to swim in the net, right? We're missing this. It's almost as if that's not the point. Have you ever noticed that some people try to get, avoid getting caught more than they try to do good? Have you ever noticed some people like in school, right? There's that one kid. It's like, he's not trying to do good. He's just trying not to get caught doing all the bad. And what happens when our motivation becomes, are you going to get in or get out? They, they do these tests with kids where they have a hidden camera on them and they try to talk about delayed gratification, right? And they put a, a marshmallow in front of the kid and they say, if you want, you can eat this one marshmallow, but if you wait you will get two of them. And most of the kids can't wait. There was one kid who hollowed out and ate the marshmallow (laughs) and left it there and then got this so he could try and get the second one. (laughs) He's a politician in the making. What happens is life becomes about hell avoidance. Life life becomes about how do I not get caught? Life becomes about what is it okay for me to do? What is it not okay for me to do? It it is no longer about actually living. It actually has to do with this fear motivation. And, And it becomes something that we're defensive. The gospel is something that we're defensive. Are you in? I got to make sure that I'm in. I got to make sure that I've done the right things. I've got to make sure that I've, you know, met my quota. I've got to make sure. And you guys have all heard those preachers, right? Who, who stand and they preach and they've got that trembling voice and they shout and they just shake and they let you know that it is fire and brimstone. You will not see the kingdom of heaven. God is going to put everyone to hell. Those who act this way and who do this manner of myth, they will be cast in the, you know, and it's this idea. Okay. Anyone who does this is out of it. And then, oh, you have to do this to get into it. Well, what becomes your motivation? Is it fear? You have a defense, defensive faith rather than an offensive one. One that is out to win. You're just out to make sure you don't mess up. Make sure you don't falter. Make sure you don't fall in some way or another. It seems as if the gospel in life is all about shaping what's necessary, right? It's like, I I need this gospel to do the right thing so that I can become the right person. And it's no longer about really good news. It's no longer about relationship with God. It's no longer about 
God loving you, caring for you, God reaching you. It's all about how can you be good enough? And once again, we've fallen back into the trap where we miss the point. The net is out and it's catching the fish. The fish are not catching the net. And gospel is just that. We are caught. It's not we catch it. Have you ever wondered how one person who gets hurt then goes on and hurts other people and then there's another person who's hurt in the same way and they go on to help other people, right? What, what's going on there? There's something happening in the character of that person where that person who is hurt instinctively wants to hurt other people and the other person who's hurt changes and they want to help other people. See, I think that's the gospel. I think that's the net of God catching their heart and saying, there's another way. I think that is the gospel changing the way a person interacts with life. Even when life has treated them badly, they see a way of treating life better. And we all have that option. Because how do you make that happen? Right? I wish I knew. If I could make that happen with my kids, right? I mean, like, how do I teach them? No, you don't just repay evil for evil. You repay evil for good. That's what Jesus said. Well, that's not fair. They're going to get away with this, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, yeah, I, I understand. It doesn't make sense, but there's something else going on that you don't understand. There, there's something else that we have to be mindful of. And this is one of those areas where Gospel is all about what is good. It's all about the goodness of God. It's not about the goodness of men. It's not about how good these fish are or if it's the right fish or if this fish said the right prayer or if this fish believes the right things. It's all about the goodness of God. And God is catching everyone. And you guys have heard these kinds of stories. You know, imagine... Just for fun, if you're a woman, right? And then, you know, this handsome man, you know, it could be David Beckham, Brad Pitt, George Clooney. You know, those are, I guess, some of the top guys out there. He, he comes up to you and he sees you and he says, I've seen you from a distance. I have changed my life's calendar for this moment in this meeting so that I could come to you because I want to win you for myself. I love you. I have given up wealth and fame and would give up anything just so that I could be with you for the rest of my life. I will sacrifice all that I have so that you can be mine, so that you will be my wife. And if you would marry me, I would be the happiest man and would love you from this day forward for the rest of my life. You're thinking, okay, yeah, I can take that, right? <laughs> what happened if that same guy came up to you and said, I want you to marry me, and you're going to marry me, because if you don't, something bad will happen to you every day for the rest of your life, if you don't. You'll get hit by a car, 
Someone's going to kick your puppy. There's going to be mosquitoes. There'll be locusts. There'll be, you know, frogs, whatever plagues we can think of. Something bad is going to happen. Every day for the rest of your life, something bad will happen to you if you don't marry me. You might marry him, right? I don't, who likes locusts, right? No one wants their puppy kicked. So, you know, you might say yes to that just because you don't want that bad to happen to you every day for the rest of your life. But it's totally different. It's totally different. It's not even comparable. One is romantic. One is wooing you. One is winning you. One is something that pulls your life up. The other one is something that you do because otherwise your puppy's going to get kicked, right? And so we see that Life is not one of these two scenarios. That with God and with this net, it's really just the one. Where God has sent out the net and he's wooing and he's trying to reach and he's trying to catch us. Imagine the life in which those scenarios would take place. What does Jesus say in Matthew twenty three thirty seven? Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. And there is the heart of God. I wanted to. I tried to win you, but you were not willing. At the end of this, there is the pronouncement of judgment. And that's what we usually focus on. We usually focus on this pronouncement of judgment. A lot of scholars believe that Matthew actually added verses 49 and 50 to this to try and bring clarification. This is very similar to what we have a few parables back with the weed and the weeds. It's almost the exact same ending that takes place. And it was trying to bring out clarification. But when you think of judgment... Usually, when you're pronouncing judgment, at least the pictures in my mind, it's a gavel, it's a judge condemning. Here, it's sorting. Here, it's first choosing and taking these ones, and then it's casting the others out. If you can pronounce judgment without it hurting, then something's wrong. Right? If you can pronounce judgment on someone without it bothering you, something is wrong. It bothered Jesus. I, I long to gather you and you would not. The separation that takes place, it's not that God's saying, yes, that's it for you. I've had it with you. It's God separating these and it says the angels are taking these and the others are cast into the fire where there's weeping and there's gnashing of teeth. And a lot of people believe the weeping is complaining and um, protesting, right? The weeping and gnashing of teeth has to do like, no, this isn't right, it's not fair, you've not done what, there's there's protesting what's happening to them in that point. Whatever it is, it's not happening because God is taking pleasure and condemning. It's just a separation that's taking place. You know, We get to live, all of us, in freedom. 
All of us as fish in this ocean live in the freedom that we have, and the gospel catches all of us. The truth of who God is, we, we live in a moral universe. We live in a universe of rights and wrongs, and we have to acknowledge those things, right? You, you see these things happen. You don't get to choose whether you're not going to do the moral thing or you will choose to do the moral thing. If you choose not to do the moral thing, you've done an immoral thing because that's the nature of the universe that we live in. And so if we're going to be living in this universe, in this freedom that God has given us, And if we're going to live in it in a way that's not defensive, I got to worry about getting into the right net and getting into these things, making the right decisions, wondering if I'm a good fish or from a bad fish. The reason we love is because he first loved us. The reason we care is because we are cared for. The reason we desire is because we recognize that we are desired by him. And that was, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Our strength, our power, our joy, our peace exist because of this love for us. It all comes from this. That is gospel. That is the good news. All these things come out of this. And that love is the only response we have in response to what God has given and done for us. Any other response is foreign. It does not make sense. But we all have the freedom to choose. But don't think of judgment as God condemning people because they didn't do the right things. Think of judgment as God has reached everybody. And some people refused to be changed by the gospel that God has touched their lives with and others have allowed it to change them. And that it breaks God's heart when those refuse to be changed by his love and his goodness. Any questions or thoughts on this short little parable? Yes, Adelio. Um, There are a lot of terms used for hell. The lake of fire um, is usually not considered to be hell um, because hell is cast into the lake of fire. Um, I think more than actual what it's supposed to be place-wise is what it's supposed to represent. Um, The word hell or Gehenna is a word that was used for a place where they burned trash outside the city, right? And so where the fires are never ending and it's never quenched, it was this trash pit that was constantly burning. Well, Jesus isn't saying God's going to throw you in a trash pit. But what he's saying is you're going to be in a place that's not good. And it's a place of separation. It's a place of separation from God. 
where and how that looks. We call it hell. You know, that's the name we've given it. But how and where it shows up, um, there's a lot of question in that and what it is. Separation from God, I think, is the biggest key element that everyone seems to notice that even here they're being separated, you know, from the others. Get apart from me, you who, you know, do darkness, you you know, you never knew me, depart from me. There's the idea of separation more than anything else. Um, and I think separation has a lot to do with what hell would be. If there's a separation from God who is love, who is life, then what would be that separation? It would be apart from love, apart from life, which would be death and terrible. Yeah, I'd heard that, but I'd never read, and so I didn't take a whole lot of stock until I actually read to see what it says. Um, you know, Rob Bell stirred up a lot of controversy in his book, Love Wins, when he talked about what Christians have believed about hell since the centuries. What's funny about that book is anyone who says, well, Rob Bell doesn't believe in hell, never read the book, because that's not what the book is about. The book is about a lot of different views that people have had about hell since the beginning of Christendom. And so he explores a lot of those, and then he asks questions about them to make us think a little bit more deeply about those things. Um, C.S. Lewis did a similar thing in The Great Divorce, his book on purgatory, where it was a bus ride from this place of purgatory up to heaven, who went and who didn't go there. Um, and, and so there's a lot of thoughts on what hell really is and what it isn't. Um, I, I think we have um, maybe made it more clear than it really is or tried to make it more clear than it really is or who's going there and who's not going there. Here's one of the things that Rob presented, okay? Um Children, do children go to hell? And everyone says no, or at least most everyone, right? And so when does it? When does that change? Well, there comes the age of accountability. Now, this is something that developed in the 1600s, by the way, this idea. So this is nothing new. In the 1600s, they said, well, when a child becomes old enough to have the reason between right and wrong, then they are in danger of whether they will go to hell or not. And so at the age of accountability, but before that, children are given a free pass. So then, if there's a chance you can go to hell or your child will go to hell because they make the wrong choice, they make the wrong decision, wouldn't it be better to kill your children before they can have come to the age of accountability when they don't have the ability to make that choice to guarantee they don't go to hell. Twisted, right? What's twisted? Right? It, it forces us to think about, it actually would make sense if that were the case. So maybe our thinking about hell is a little twisted still. Um, again, that doesn't make it an easy or answerable. It just throws a little twist in that to say, well, wait a second then. Yeah, I mean, no one wants to kill children. That's a terrible thought. Well, of course it's a terrible thought. It, it, it's unimaginable 
but wouldn't it make sense to make, if hell is this torment apart from God forever and ever, I could not imagine my kids going to hell. Would you rather kill your children than them go to hell? Yeah, but you see, that that's the whole point, is I don't want them to have the choice to do something that's going to punish them forever and ever and ever. There was a lady who came into my office years ago, and she said, my husband was not a Christian. I like all these things I'm hearing about Jesus, but the thought of accepting and believing in God, and if I believe in him, then I have to believe that because my husband wasn't a Christian, that he is forever in hell being punished and tormented. I cannot go there. I cannot become a Christian because of what it would do to my relationship with my husband who's dead, because it would force me to believe that this is the case, that he's in hell forever. That was her idea of what if she became a Christian, that was her only choice. Right, you know, and I tried to talk to her and say, I don't think it's that clear and that's that cut and dry. But in her mind, that was it. It's like if I say yes to Jesus, he said no to Jesus, so he's in hell forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And how can I live a life as a Christian knowing that he's in hell forever and ever? Because I loved him and he's dead, and I just can't do that. And for her, that was unimaginable, and I could understand that. I could understand that. That would be terrible. Um, I don't think it's that cut and clear dry. You know, it's not that, yes, this is it, that's it. Did he say yes to Jesus? Yep, he's in heaven. He say no to Jesus? Okay, no, then he's in hell. I mean, that's what we talked about, you know, Sunday. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, is going to go in, right? Paul says, who are the ones who know me? The ones who love their neighbor, the ones who love one another. You know, they, these are the ones who love God um, and show evidence of God. And so, I think there's just a lot more. I think God is a lot bigger than we give him credit for being, and we don't recognize that a lot of our traditions come from the 1600s, basically, from the Reformation period, and a lot of the ideas that were birthed there have carried on but haven't really worked their way through a lot. And that's why you have minds like C.S. Lewis, who challenged a lot of way we think and just says, wow, this makes a whole lot more sense than what we've been kind of given and fed in these areas. So in answer to your question, I, I think hell exists. What it is and where it is and all that, I'm not exactly sure. I think separation from God is the key of what we're looking at. I think it's in this parable and other stories. It's a separation from God. And again, quoting C.S. Lewis, what he said is if a person is walking away from God here in their life and they continue to do that for all eternity, then where will they be? And if a person is slowly moving towards God and do that for all eternity, where will they be? See, one is going to go further and further, and you'll call that hell, and the other one is get closer and closer, and we'll call that heaven. Because one's in the presence one is away from the presence. And what it is, is just a natural progression of who they are and the choice they've made. Yeah, I mean, and a lot of people see the Old Testament as God trying to shape a people to bear witness of him, but the people did not take 
And so God had to raise up the person, Christ, who represented what the people could not do, which is Israel, right? They were supposed to do this, but they failed to do that. So Christ fulfilled what Israel could not do, you know, became the fulfillment of all those things. And then where you start to see a lot of the things that even in the Old Testament, some of the prophets, where the prophets say, you know, your sacrifices, they, they're in a abhorrence to me. I, I take no delight in your burnt offerings. You know, what I desire is a broken heart and an inward. And it's like, well, wait a second. That sounds a whole lot like what we're seeing here take place in the New Testament. And it's like, well, that's what God was intending all along. But the people, again, were so caught up in their ways and their laws that they didn't allow God to work them to a place of maturity. Um, because the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. Well, then why do we have it, right? I mean, what's what's that for? What's the point of that then? And it really is more about covenant than about sacrifice. Remember, the sacrifices took place outside the altar. They didn't take place on the altar. They took place outside, and then the blood was sprinkled on the altar, and it was symbolic, again, of the covenant, not that, okay, this is paying for your sin. It's This is a remembrance of the covenant that God has made. Um, and there's just a lot of thinking of how it's really about breaking away from the covenant that God made and then turning it into a sacrificial system that God never really intended it to be, which is very interesting, I think. N.T. Wright, if any of you guys want to read some of his stuff on it. It's laborious, but it's pretty powerful. Any other thoughts? Questions? No? Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful again for your net that has captured our hearts and our lives. And Lord, we are not in the place where we decide... um, who's in and who's out, Lord. Our job is not that. Our job, if anything, is to love because you've loved us, is to be responsive to the gospel and to the good news and to allow it to shape our lives, to allow it to change our lives. And I do pray, Lord, you would give us insight into just your heart and your character and the things that you portray in scripture, Lord, that we can be accurate in how we uh, communicate. And Lord, I do pray that we would be gracious uh, towards others who we disagree with, God. Uh, Lord, I don't have all the answers, and no one does. And Lord, people are so quick to label others heretic and so quick to um, try and squelch the voice of other people who they don't agree with. And I pray, Lord, we would give place to hear before we would condemn, and that you would allow us, Lord, to have a gracious heart and to be patient even as in this parable you are. Allow you to be the one who condemns. You're the one who separates, not us. We thank you, Lord, for your goodness, and we can trust you in Jesus' name. You have been listening to the Genesis Podcast. We invite you to join us at one of our weekly gatherings. 
You can find more information at www.thegenesisstory.com as well as opportunities to help financially support this podcast. Thank you for listening.